Today we'll be reading from Esther chapter 4. In your pew Bibles, that's page 356. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went clothed and sat only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of a sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Ether, Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you will come to a royal position for, to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thanks so much, Andrew, for reading for us the pivotal moment, one of the pivotal moments in the story of Esther, and that's our theme this morning. Before I get started, I just want to um, 
make a couple of acknowledgments uh, this morning of some folks who've been working incredibly hard um, in our community for the last month. Uh, we, as you uh, may know, we have just concluded four consecutive weeks of a day camp here in uh, Virgil, right on this uh, property, um, upwards of, uh, you know, over 100 kids have passed through uh, full days, uh, nine till four, with uh, young ones running around. Um, and so if you have been involved in serving in day camp, we just would like to acknowledge you and, and honor you publicly. So I'm going to ask you actually to stand. If you were serving uh, this last month, here we go. Some of you did it all day, every day. Thank you. Jeff and Michelle uh, gave just tremendous leadership, and uh, so we're so thankful. And uh, we've heard such good reports out in the community of um, just kids having fantastic, fun times, and also learning the scriptures, learning about who God is. And so uh, we're going to continue to pray, pray for fruit and in, um, from this ministry. So we're at the part of our, t- our gathering where we, um, where we come to the scriptures and um, try to hear from God and say what he would have to say for us. And we do that every week where we come under the, the text of the scripture and, and try to mine out from it what, what is God saying to us in our day, in our time, in our place uh, in these texts. And this summer we're going through various stories. Now, um, there's a reason we, uh, we come to the scripture every week, and that's because the scripture is about someone. It's revelation to us about someone. Who is that? Who is the Bible all about? Jesus, God, I heard some of those, that's, and that's right. The, the Bible is God's self-revelation to us. He's revealing to us who he is and what he's like and what he's all about. But today we come to a story, and, inclu- and in fact, an entire book of the Bible that doesn't even mention God. God doesn't show up anywhere in the ten chapters that make up the book of Esther. He's not mentioned. He's not referred to. His name never appears. It's like, you know, if I get towards the end of my life and I decide to write an autobiography to write a, a story about, uh, about my life and not mention myself. That doesn't make any sense, right? So why is the book of Esther in the scriptures? Why is the book of Esther in the Bible? God isn't mentioned, but as we're going to see today in this story, and this story is probably one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. It's got so much in it. But God's still the hero of this story. This is a story of God's providence, which means his care and his protection for his people. How he orchestrates the events of world history, how he orchestrates the events of our lives to accomplish his purposes, but to also care and to protect for his people. That in light of his promises, though he may seem absent, he's still at work. And so that's a challenge for us sometimes, right? To see God and to respond to him when he seems invisible to us. That when God seems invisible, that we would still see him at work. 
and that we would still respond to him. There are times when he seems hidden in our lives, right? He seems silent. He seems distant. So the story of Esther takes place in in the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire, not to get too much into a history lesson here, but the Persian Empire took over from the Babylonian Empire. So King Cyrus of the Persians defeated the Babylonian Empire. And, And the Persian Empire dominated the Middle Eastern world at this time. And they were eventually replaced by the Greek under Alexander the Great, who then replaced by the Romans, right? And so there's this series of empires that are really dominating the known world at the time. Now, as, as you may recall, that uh, the Jewish people were taken out of, uh, were conquered by the Babylonian Empire. The, the people of Judah and, and Benjamin, the two tribes, the southern kingdom, were conquered by Babylon. And the people were taken into captivity. They were taken into exile in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Daniel was one of those who was taken into exile. And uh, the people of Israel were, the Jewish people were in exile for 70 years until Cyrus, the Persian empire, the first uh, Persian king, uh, came and took over. And he allowed some of the Jewish people to return. You can read about that in uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But yet, um, many of the Jews remained. And they were kind of interwoven into the Persian Empire. And so that's where the story of Esther is taking place. Um, King Xerxes is now on the throne. He's the grandson of King Cyrus. And, um, and so the Jewish people are kind of interwoven into this Persian Empire. And the story... Um, that we're going to look at today is taking place in the capital city of the Persian Empire called Susa under King Xerxes. Now, um, King Xerxes uh, holds, at the beginning of this book, the book opens with King Xerxes opening uh, or holding a 180-day summit in the capital of Susa. This happened, uh, history tells us, in 483 B.C., and uh, this was a war summit. This was uh, King uh, Xerxes was overseeing uh, uh, an empire of 127 provinces, all with their own governors. And so he's gathering together all the leaders from the 127 provinces to have a summit to uh, plan the, the battle, a battle with the Greeks that was coming. It's a war summit, the strategy to lead up to battle. And at the end of this 180-day summit, he holds a week-long, seven-day feast to show off. Just to show off to all of the other leaders how great he is. And and one of the things that he wants to do after he's had too much uh, to drink is to show off how beautiful his wife is, Queen Vashti. And and he he calls for her to come in so that all the other leaders could look and see how beautiful his wife is. But Queen Vashti resists. And so King Xerxes and his cronies are um, getting a little worried that word will get out that a women's liberation movement will start. And so he uh, and his cronies come up with this uh, plan to remove her and then to sign this ridiculous law into place that men are the masters of their domain, that men are the masters of their home. Now Xerxes... Um, We can learn from history because the Persians wrote everything down. So we know so much about the Persian Empire uh, because of the chronicles, because of the history that they have uh, left for us. King Xerxes was known for his temper. 
This, here's a story out of, that we know from history of King Xerxes. So they were planning for a battle with the Greeks. And as part of that battle plan, they uh, built some bridges over a waterway um, for the army to get across. But uh, a storm rose up. The, uh, the, it was like on the, close to the ocean. And so the, the ocean waves um, came up and they actually, the bridges collapsed in the storm under the pressure from the ocean. So Xerxes became so furious that he took all of the engineers who designed those bridges and had them killed. But not only that, King Xerxes, he ordered that his army, his soldiers, walk into the ocean with whips to whip the ocean. And not only that, he, all, he ordered the second wave of soldiers to go in with spears and to stab the waves. That's the dude we're talking about here. He's whipping oceans. He's stabbing waves. And so he's replaced. He said to Vashti, you're no longer my wife. You're no longer queen. And so Esther, the, the, the story of Esther really gets started when King Xerxes decides to hold a beauty pageant to find the replacement for Vashti. He wants to find the most beautiful woman in all of the empire. Josephus, a historian, tells us that after the first round, they whittled the the contestants down to 400 women, who would then spend one year of beautification. I don't know what they were doing for that one year, but that one year of getting ready for their opportunity to meet King Xerxes. And Esther is a Jewish girl who is part of, who is selected to be part of this group. She keeps to herself the fact that she is Jewish, and she goes by her exile name, Hadassah. Esther is an orphan who has been living in the city of Susa. She's living under the guardianship of her older cousin, Mordecai, and she is beautiful. And, in fact, wins the contest is wins the pageant and she is selected as queen an exiled jewish orphan is exalted to the highest position a woman could have in the world at that time and we read this in uh in uh, in esther 2 verse 17 it says the king loved esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all of the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes, believe it or not, to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. And so Esther is taken from Mordecai, And while all that is going on, Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, who has been taking care of her as her guardian, Mordecai wants to know what's going on. And so Mordecai is hanging around the gate of Susa. And while he's doing that, he overhears a plot to kill the king. That some people who are mad at the king, who are are plotting against him, want to take him out. And they have this plan in place that would kill Xerxes. But Mordecai overhears it and now gets word to Esther, who, who warns Xerxes, and they, they, they foil the plot. Xerxes' life is preserved, and Mordecai is credited with saving the king's life. 
Chapter 3 opens and we're introduced to the bad guy, the villain. His name is Haman. Haman is ranked second in all of the Persian Empire. Haman is, uh, is number two. He's the right-hand man of King Xerxes. Haman is, we know two things about him. We know that he's an Amalekite, which means he's, from his, he's not a, a Persian uh, by, by race. He's an Amalekite, which is part of the nation of Amalek. And if you maybe you recall that as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt earlier on in the Bible, um, they, uh, they were coming to Canaan to the promised land. And the very first nation they had to defeat was Amalek. And the story is famous because whenever Moses held up his arms, uh, Israel was win, but he was getting tired, and so his arms would fall, and then Amalek would, would gain the upper hand, and so Aaron and Hur would, came alongside him and, and held his arms up. That's that nation. Haman is a descendant from that. But not only that, he's an Agagite, so he, which means he has royal blood in him. So uh, he is a descendant from King Agag. And again, if you read him for Samuel, Samuel hacked King Agag to pieces. So Haman knew this, and Haman hated the Jews. Haman was an anti-Semite. He hated the Jews. Not only that, he was a narcissist, which means that not only did Haman hate the Jews, Haman loved Haman. Haman loved himself and thought a lot, about, a, a lot of himself and So he made everyone bow down to him. So as he was walking around the city of Susa, people, whenever they would see him coming, had to get on their face, get on their knees, and bow down before him and say how great he is. And everyone did that except for Mordecai. And so it says in chapter 3, verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai didn't bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Haman hated Mordecai because Mordecai refused to bow down to him. And so Haman comes up with a plot that is going to rid the world of all of the Jewish people. And he goes to King Xerxes and says, King, I'm loyal to you. I'm on your side. The Jewish people are trouble. They're going to rise up against you. They're seditious. They're going to, they're going to break away. They're going to stop paying their taxes. They're going, to, they're going to revolt against you. The Jewish people are trouble. And so King Xerxes says, yes, let's get rid of them. And he, and he finances the whole thing. And he signs an edict that all Jews are to be killed on a particular day. And, and, and Haman, has he rolls some dice called Pur uh, to, to pick the day. March 7th, 493 B.C. That on March 7th, 493 B.C., all of the Jewish people are to be put to death. And it's law. The law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be changed. That's the thing with them. And so Haman, his, his plot is taking shape. The day is coming and he's planning on taking care of Mordecai himself personally. So he builds 75-foot gallows at his house on which he will kill Mordecai personally. It's interesting, right? Knowing the role of the Jewish people in God's story. Jesus says to the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. Knowing the role of the Jewish people in, in, in God's plan in Romans 11... For, that God's plan for the Jewish people includes the future. 
It's interesting, right, how often the obliteration of the Jewish people has been attempted. Something satanic about it. And in fact, this pride-filled second-in-command Haman is meant to remind us of an angelic figure who preceded him. And the beautiful bride Esther is meant to remind us of another bride. So Mordecai hears the law. He hears of the law, and he gets word to Esther, which is what we, Andrew read for us in chapter 4. You have to talk to the king. Esther, you have to talk to the king. And Esther says, oh, I can't do it. You need a personal invitation to talk to the king, and the king hasn't, hasn't talked to me in a month. And if I go to him and he doesn't want to see me, the, the law says I need to be put to death. He ha- uh, unless he holds out the scepter, which is the golden rod, unless he holds that out, you know, then my life will be spared. But he's kind of gotten bored with me, I guess. He, he's, maybe he's not happy with me. He hasn't called for me. I haven't even seen him in 30 days. And Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, yes, you may be killed. You may be killed if you go to the king, but you'll definitely be dead if you don't. You may be killed if you go to the king, but you'll definitely be dead if you don't. And so there's this beautiful text that Andrew read in uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. So Mordecai has this great sense of faith. The Jewish people have to be saved. There's no way that this is going to happen. Deliverance, rescue for the Jews will come from somewhere. And then he says, he adds this, perhaps, who knows, whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe, just maybe, Esther, you have, have, the events that have preceded this have been for this very purpose. Maybe this isn't just a, an accident, a series of accidents. Maybe this is significant. Maybe this moment is significant. Maybe this is the time, the moment, why you have become queen for such a time as this. Mordecai affirms God's sovereignty. He says, deliverance will come. But Esther, you'll perish if you don't act. When we, whenever we talk about God's sovereignty, which is this belief that we have that God is in control, he's mighty, he does what he wills, he can, his purposes will happen and be accomplished. Nothing can stop God's plan. He's sovereign. We also need to keep in mind, maybe you have been raised up for such a time as this. Maybe you or I need to act for such a moment. God's plan will happen, and maybe you've been raised up to accomplish his plans at this time. It's hard to hold those two things together. God is going to act, and maybe you're raised up for this time. And so Esther says in verse 16, Go gather the Jews that are found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. doesn't say anything about prayer. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if, if I perish, I perish. If I die, 
I die. And so fast forward. She goes to the king. He holds out the scepter. says, what do you want? What do you want, Queen Esther? And she says, I want to invite you and Haman to a banquet that I'm going to hold. And it's at this banquet that we're led to believe that Esther is going to reveal to King Xerxes that uh, the plot against the Jewish people includes her too. She's not yet revealed to him that she's Jewish. So they're at this banquet, just the three of them, Haman, King Xerxes, and Esther. And the king is just enraptured with Esther. He's enthralled with her. He's gaga over her. And he says to her, Queen Esther, what do you want? You can have anything you ask, up to half my kingdom. I'll give you half of everything I have. What do you want? And she says, this is my request, Xerxes. Uh, Would the two of you guys come back again tomorrow night for another banquet? That's that's what I want. And then I'll tell you what I want then. And we're kind of left to wonder, why, why the delay? Why does, why does she not just come out at this first banquet? Why doesn't she just uh, reveal what's going on uh, and reveal the plot, reveal her Jewish heritage? Why, why does she delay a day? Well, the answer is found in what happens in between these two banquets. Separated just by 24 hours. There's this incredible series of coincidences. Haman leaves the banquet. And he's walking home and he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai again doesn't bow down to him. And so Haman is just furious again. He's just furious. And he wants him hanged. He he doesn't want to have to wait till March. He wants him hanged that day. At the same time, Xerxes, that evening, can't sleep. Can't fall asleep. And so he asked one of his servants to uh, read him a bedtime story. The Chronicles of the Kingdom. Hopefully to put him to sleep. He says, read me some of the history of the kingdom. Hopefully that will put me to sleep. And so not only can Xerxes happen to not sleep, the servant happens to read the account of Mordecai saving the king's life. And the king says, hey, what, what reward did we give Mordecai for being so loyal to me, for saving my life? And the, the servant says, there, there was no reward given. We overlooked that. More, Haman, or, uh, Xerxes asks the question, receives the answer that no reward has given to Mordecai. He looks up, and there's Haman. Haman has come to King Xerxes to ask that Mordecai be killed. Xerxes, though, has in his mind, what reward can I give Mordecai? So what's going to happen? What is going to happen? Xerxes asks a question. And the question is this. What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? What should we do for the person that I want to just honor publicly? I need a volunteer. All right, Rye, come on up.
use a microphone. Do you know how to use a microphone? Yeah. Okay. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm nine. You're nine? Nine what? Nine years old. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, my birthday's in May 9th. May 9th. Okay. And you're nine. Oh, wow. Nice. Anything else? No. No? What's your name? Riley. Riley? Riley what? Smith. Riley Smith. Hmm. Do you have parents? <laughs> yeah. Yeah? Oh, okay. Uh, who are your parents? Lucas and Trish. What's their last name? Smith. Oh, Smith. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Do you like Jolly Ranchers? Yeah. Do you know what they are? Yeah. Oh, great. I got a whole bag here. Just happened to have a whole bag. And I was actually thinking this morning, I, I usually on Sunday mornings, I come here pretty early to get ready for today. And I was thinking, I had these Jolly Ranchers, and I was thinking, I'd really love to give a Jolly Rancher to a kid today. Good kid. It's friendly. And I was thinking, ah, you know what? I, I should give one to a, one of Lucas and Trisha's kids. It's like, I wonder if they like Jolly Ranchers. I, do you think I should give one to one of Lucas and Trisha's kids, a Jolly Rancher to them? Yes. Yeah? Okay, great, great idea, right? Hey, Maya. Here you go. Oh, Bryden, you're here too. Do you like Apple? Great. Great idea, Riley. All right. Thanks. Thanks for your help. Right. So Haman is there asking for Mordecai's life. And Xerxes is there wanting to honor Mordecai. And so he asks the question to Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman says, well, who else would the king delight to honor? Right? Mr. Loves himself? Haman? It's like, of course he's talking about me. What would I like? No one else deserves to be honored like I should be honored. He's obviously talking about me. So he says, what you should do, king, is you should take your royal robes, those, those clothes that are reserved just for you because you're the king. You should take those royal robes and place them on this man. And you should take your crown and place it on his head. And take your horse, the royal horse, and place the man on that horse. And then you should take a high official and have him lead this horse with the man that you want to honor on top and say, Hail, let's honor. This is what happens to the person the king delights to honor. And the king says, Haman, great idea. Go get Mordecai, put him on that horse, and you lead him around. <laughs> Haman, you lead him around, Mordecai around, and say, this is what happens to the man the king delights to honor. And the story here pivots. Haman has become, has, was being exalted. Mordecai was going down, and at this moment, their paths reverse. Mordecai begins to be exalted, and Haman begins to fall down. And so you can just imagine how, um, how, how humiliated, how furious 
Haman is. How angry he is. How disgraced he is. He's finally finished leading Mordecai, his enemy, his sworn enemy, the one he wanted killed that day around the city. He's finished and he goes home. And he's seeking comfort in his wife. He's seeking comfort from his friends. But instead, this is what he hears. Listen to what he hears in chapter 6, verse 13. He said that his wife and his friends say, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Haman, if Mordecai's Jewish and he's being honored, you're on the wrong team. You're on the wrong team. And so... Haman goes to the second banquet, the second feast, and he's confused. He's humiliated. And at this feast, Xerxes says to Esther again, Esther, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom. It's yours. I love you. You're my wife. Esther says in chapter 7, verse 3, Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted to me. For my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. This is where she says, You've signed a law to kill all the Jews, and sweetie, I'm Jewish. Save me. Save me and my people. Because you'll suffer loss here too. You'll lose me. Imagine Haman. Imagine his shock. Imagine his terror. Imagine his fear. Xerxes is ticked. Xerxes the king is ticked off. He says in in, in verse 5, it says, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther says, the enemy is the wicked Haman. Now Xerxes is mad enough to whip an ocean. And so he goes for a walk to try to cool his head. But Haman Haman stays with Esther and he he gets at her feet and he's begging for his life. But Xerxes comes back in and thinks... He's about to assault, to hurt his wife, to hurt Esther. And he has Haman executed on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. And he declares that all of Haman's property be given to Esther, who gives it to Mordecai. And the king exalts Mordecai to Haman's place, second in the kingdom. Now there's still an issue. What to do about this unchangeable law? And so Esther and Mordecai devise another plan. And they have the king sign another law that says two things. He says, you don't have to do it. You don't have to kill the Jews. And the Jews, you guys can prepare and defend yourselves. And so March 7th came and went, and 75,000 Persians died that day. And so they established the Feast of Purim, of Purim, after the, after the poor, the dice that were rolled. 
It's a feast of triumph, celebrating God's protection for his people. They would read the story of Esther, and all the kids would have rattles. And they would rattle every time the name of Haman was read so that no one would hear his name. So long after Haman is dead, Esther and Mordecai are flourishing in the royal house. So this is a great story. This is a great story, right? This dire threat. There's an evil villain. There's suspense. There's drama. There's reversal. There's poetic justice. There's a happy ending. But what are we to make of the fact that God is hidden? Remember I said God's never referred to? Even when they fast, it doesn't say they prayed. There's no reference at all to God. So what are we to make of the fact that God is hidden? Or is he hidden? Because if he isn't, how does God reveal himself in Esther's story? I want to show us three ways. Three ways that God reveals himself in Esther's story. The first is in his providence. In his care and his protection. In how he has ordered the circumstances of life to accomplish his purposes and the good of his people. We see God's providence in a girl who loses her parents but is brought up by a godly relative. We see God's providence and that this same girl is kept in exile in the capital city. We see God's providence in the downfall of Vashti and that this Jewish orphan wins the beauty contest. All of which predates the law to kill the Jews, but God was already orchestrating a path of salvation. We see God's providence in Mordecai being at the right place at the right time to overhear the plot. And also having channels of communication to get that information to the king. We see God's providence in King Xerxes' inability to sleep. We see God's providence in Mordecai's story just happened to have been read. We see God's providence in Esther making this strange decision to wait for a second banquet. You see, the invisible hand of God is all over this story, and that's intentional. You see, it's an ingenious strategy of the Holy Spirit who inspired this book to have us think deeply about the circumstances of our stories. To have us think deeply about our stories and how our stories, our lives are ordered for a great purpose. That our lives are not random accidents. That our lives are not just a series of coincidences. But that God is orchestrating the events of our lives to accomplish his good purposes and to care for and protect his people. You see, no one could, no one could destroy God's promise of salvation through a coming Jewish savior. And deliverance and rescue for the Jews would rise up. Mordecai was right. We see God's hand, God's presence, and his providence. We see God's revelation of God in his people. You see, Esther was a beautiful woman, but it was her inner beauty that is seen in her call to fast. Inner beauty is seen in her courage to put her life on the line to save many. And so while her physical beauty may have won the throne, it was her spiritual beauty that saved a nation. And we see Mordecai, who had this deep-seated devotion to God. That's the only thing that could have kept him from bowing down to Haman. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
the assurance that Mordecai has that God would deliver his people. God reveals himself over and over in this story through his people who show us how to live in a world that often opposes us, who show us how to live with integrity and with courage. If God seems silent in your life, the story of Esther would have you think deeply about the circumstances, the series of events that have made up your story. And if God seems silent in your life, he would have us think deeply about the people that he's placed in your life to reveal him to you. There's one more way God reveals himself in this story, I think, and, and that's reminding of us of his great purpose and plans. See, the beauty of Esther is meant to remind us of the beauty of the bride of Christ that will be presented one day as holy and pure. The courage and the risk and the sacrifice of Esther is meant to remind us of Jesus, who willingly and courageously gave his life for his people. We're meant to be reminded of the such a time as this. The kairos moments of our lives. The significant moments of our lives. Which ultimately point to the most significant moment. The most kairos moment. The, most mo- the greatest moment of all of history. Galatians 4. When the time had fully come. In the fullness of time, at just the right time, for a time such as this, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. For such a time as this. The story reminds us that the church has an enemy. One who is filled with pride, who is second to God himself, but in self-service was led to rebellion. And the victory of Esther and Mordecai remind us that Jesus' victory is for all of his people too. And so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this incredible story and for the incredible ways that you reveal yourself to us. Even when you seem absent and silent and invisible, Father, help us to see your providence, how you are orchestrating our lives and speaking to us through the so-called coincidences, through the people that you've placed along our path. And then help us, Lord, to order our lives so that our lives line up with your great purpose, your great victory that you're winning for your people, that your victory becomes our victory. And so give us confidence in you. Give us a new understanding of how you work and how you work in our lives. And so, Father, we praise you for the victory of Jesus. We praise you for Jesus who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, but who came to the earth on a mission to perish. And in whose death and resurrection we find victory over the enemies that would kill us. So increase our faith, increase our love, our love for you, our love for our neighbors. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.